Welcome to Morning Soap. At Fusion Church, our desire is that every believer would not just attend church, but also hear from God daily through His Word. As we read the Bible, we begin to see how God responds to things. Doing daily devotions repatterns the way we think, transforms the spirit of our mind, and helps us become more like Jesus. Join us here, Monday through Friday, as various pastors and leaders at Fusion Church share devotion and teaching through that day's soap scripture. Download the current soap reading plan at fusionchurch.cc soap. Well, good morning, folks. Uh, good to see each of you on the screen. Some of them, I see your faces. I thought I see a name, but it's great to have each one here. Before we do anything, how about we stretch? Uh, that kind of gets the blood flowing just a little bit. Uh, and it can be an act of worship all at the same time. So it's great to be with you, uh, brothers and sisters, and great to be able to open God's word as we start today. I know it will make a difference. Uh, I had something to eat before, physical food, but uh, this spiritual food, I think, is going to give us the strength we need as well. So let's take a minute. Let's pray and open our hearts to the Lord. Lord, we just want to thank you for the gift of a new day. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather as your people, uh, Lord, to seek your face. And we thank you for the gift of your word that you've given us, Lord, that uh, is right before us in our hands. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would breathe upon the word. Lord, make it living, make it alive. May it touch our hearts. May it touch our minds. And Father, we just come. We come expecting to meet you through your word. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. Matthew 6, let's read it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees its secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask it. Pray then in this way. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, 
Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Do not lay up for yourself measure treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason, I say to you, don't be anxious for your life, as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if your father arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. Okay. So, as we look at this, uh, I opened up the scripture, Matthew 6, and I thought to myself, like, what's the deal here? And I was looking at some other scriptures that I'm supposed to do this month, and they're hop, skipping, and jumping all over the place. So I got a hold of Pastor Jason and said, Jason, like, what's the deal here? We're all over. And then he said, well, uh, most of these verses that I'm giving this month deal with fasting. And then the light bulb went on that we're having the Daniel fast. So that's kind of the deal. Uh, there's going to be a lot of preparation for the Daniel fast as we look at verses on fasting. And I will look at that first today, but I have to be honest with you, that's not the, the thing that primarily spoke to me. Uh, I'll deal with the fasting, but uh, there's something that really grabbed me in a deeper way, and I'll share that in just a little bit. So let's start out with that fasting verse, okay? Uh, if you turn Matthew 6 and verse 16, Jesus says this, and he's addressing the crowd. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. 
So Jesus is basically saying, uh, and it's interesting, he says, whenever you fast, really important thing. He didn't say if, it's assumed that God's people will fast. It's not an optional, not that we have to do that every day, but Jesus is assuming there will be times in our life that we'll be led literally to fast. Uh, but he says this idea of fasting has to really be a heartfelt thing to make a difference. And he, he lays out the Pharisees and he really um, rebukes them well because he says, uh, when you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. He's talking about the Pharisees. For they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. And you can almost see the Pharisee out there going around disheveled, face not washed, hair all over. And what he's basically saying is, I am miserable. Everybody, look at me. Look at the sacrifice. Look at the sacrifice I'm doing. I'm fasting. Hey, uh, you know, I'm getting brownie pots. So points. So he's he's basically Jesus is saying this guy is just making a big show, and what Jesus is saying this outer show really from God's perspective is worthless. It, it's meaningless because it doesn't come from the heart. And basically, uh, Jesus then says, "Okay, don't do that. Don't be gloomy." He says, "Do this." Verse seventeen. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. In other words. Don't make a big deal. Don't make a big show to everybody. Hey, I'm doing the fast. I'm doing the Daniel fast. Hey, everybody, catch me. Look at me. He said, no, no, no. Um, he says, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will repay you. Jesus is saying, hey, if this is a sincere act of your heart, God the father sees it. And he'll repay you, or in a sense, there will be a reward for fasting. So let me just jump a moment here in fasting. Fasting uh, is not us trying to manipulate God, put a stronghold on God, saying, God, if I fast, and I fast really hard, and maybe more than one day, maybe I don't even do the dining fast, I just don't eat anything for a couple days. Uh, Lord, if I fast long enough, then I'm going to put you in a corner. And you have to answer the prayer the way I think it needs to be. That's not the way fasting is, operates from a biblical point of view. We're not forcing God to do what we think we want him to do. It's the other way around. Fasting really is to get my heart right and my heart ready to respond to God in a correct way. So fasting really is when we go to God and we're saying, Lord, uh, I have a situation and I'm not taking it casually. I'm not taking it lightly. Lord, I'm dead serious about an issue. And to show, Lord, that seriousness, I'm going to fast. Again, not to twist God's arm, but God, I got to draw close to you. I can't play games with this situation because it's really intense. Uh, if you see many times in the Old Testament, uh, we're told that people fasted when they repented of their sin in sackcloth and ashes. They fasted saying, God, we're really sorry. Lord, we messed up. We sinned. God, please forgive us. But it's not just dealing with matters of sin. Many times we can fast when we find ourselves in a crisis. And you'll see this many times in the Old Testament. When the people were in a crisis, the Israelites, they fasted and prayed. 
and what they're doing in that crisis is saying, God, God, we're sincere. We seek your face. Lord, we need to hear your voice. And I think that's one of the big deals in regards to fasting is fasting helps us to tune out the distractions, to tune out the world, to tune out everything that's between us and God and saying, God, you have my full attention. Lord, show me your perspective. It could be a health issue you could be fasting about. Um, it could be a relationship problem with somebody. Uh, it could be uh, a situation for a burden of an unsaved loved one. Doesn't matter, but fasting is really the heart response coming to God. I've got to get closer. I'm tuning in, Lord. Lord, hear my prayer. Respond. To me, that's the essence of fasting uh, that Jesus is laying here. And he says, I'll reward it. And you may not see a reward instantly on the day of the fast. I find many times if I fasted, the, the result, quote unquote, to some level was never on the day of the fast. It usually always followed the fast a day or two or a little bit later. But fasting definitely, definitely makes a difference. So Jesus says fasting can't just be an external religion. It's a religion of the heart. And he says here in Matthew 6, 1, again, in a generalized fashion, he says here, 6-1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. In other words, we don't do things to get an impression for people or for people to pat us on the back. No, no, no. We're living to please not men and women. We're living to please God Almighty. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Uh-uh. That's not where we want to be noticed. We want to be noticed by God. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus begins to talk about uh, two other specific ways uh, that there can be an external religion that really has no impact. Uh, and he talks about an internal thing that's important instead. Uh, notice what he says here uh, in regards to the idea of giving alms. Two, whenever, therefore, you give alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be honored, here it is, by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. In other words, many times the, the Pharisee would go out and they'd make a big show. And when they go to the synagogue, they, they'd throw the money in uh, the coffers and you could hear it rattle around. They wanted to make sure everybody, may, listen, everybody, listen how much money I'm given. All because they wanted a pat on the back. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's an inner thing. He says three, but when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, that your arms may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. So he talks about, okay, uh, the idea of fasting. He talks about the idea of finances, but now he starts talking about the idea of prayer and he begins to blast again the Pharisees as well. Look at verse five. And when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. I mean, I could just imagine here are these Pharisees. They're out on the main street, okay? They're out literally on the main street, and they're lifting their hands to God, like they're praying out loud, just so that everybody can say, wow, what holy 
person that is. Look at them. Look at it. And they pray such big words. Again, they're just looking for recognition from humans, not recognition from God. And Jesus said they got it all wrong. It's not an external deal. It's an internal deal of the heart. So listen to what Jesus says. He says, don't, you don't have to go on a street corner. He says, but you, okay, referring to us as Christians, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room. So in those days, uh, Jewish homes didn't have all the rooms we have, but they did have like a general room uh, and then a room where they could sleep. But then there was like a closet per se. Uh, so what Jesus is saying here is, Find a quiet spot away from everybody else. When you pray, go into your inner room, go into your closet where nobody else is. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret. And what really blew me out of the water, it's amazing to me how sometimes the Holy Spirit highlights a verse uh, and he underlines it. And I was reading this portion of scripture and what just knocked me over when he said shut the door shut the door and I felt the Lord was saying to me at that point John shut the door shut the come into wherever you are in a quiet space shut the door to the world just push it out uh don't turn your attention to the world and its cares and its turmoil and all the other craziness shut the door and when you shut the door, realize you've stepped into my presence. Realize you've stepped into the holy of holies. And that just amazes me that instantaneously we can step out of our natural environment, our everyday life. And in a sense, Jesus says, shut the door, shut the visible world out and enter into the invisible world. Uh, and I think we need to realize that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished. And the curtain was pulled down uh, between the holy place and the most holy place. God was saying, the door is open now into heaven. You can enter into a heavenly realm. In fact, uh, we're told in Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence and boldness to the throne of grace. That means into the very presence of God Almighty that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is saying, shut the door, come into your own quiet spot. And when you come there, realize that you have the privilege and the honor of speaking to the living God, the almighty God who made the heavens and who made the earth. That's just amazing to me that we have that privilege. We may not always have a great sense of God's presence. There's times we can and we say, wow, this is sweet. Uh, but there's other times we may not sense a presence. But what we can realize when we shut the door, brothers and sisters, is that when we're praying, that God sees us. And I remind myself sometimes when I'm sitting in my chair, hey, Lord, I know as I'm praying, you see me. You see me sitting right in this chair. And not only do you see me, you are hearing the words that I'm praying. So God is a God who sees. He sees us. He knows what's going on in our life. And he hears our prayers when we reach out to him. Always he does that. 
What's mind-blowing, though, uh, pray to your father who is in a mind-blower, literally a mind-blower, because the Jews didn't see God primarily as a father. They saw him as a lofty king seated in heavenly places. They saw him as the almighty God who fought for the armies of Israel. They saw him as the Holy One. But just a handful of times in the Old Testament is God referred to as a father. And what's, what's mind-blowing, literally, again to me, is you study the Gospels and Jesus refers to God basically one way. He doesn't say Almighty God, Holy One. Uh, all this, he always refers to God as my father. And that's an amazing thing. And then he goes on as he goes through his different teachings. He doesn't say it's just my father. He says, as you give your life to me and accept me as your savior, he said, now my father can become your father. And that's just amazing. In fact, he gets even more intimate in regards to this idea of father, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's literally sweating blood because the stress factor is way off the charts, that he actually begins a prayer, Abba, Abba. And the word Abba in the Aramaic that is written at that point means daddy. So literally, as Jesus is going through the worst day of his life, of stress, he cries out, Daddy, Daddy. And we're told by Paul's letter that that Daddy has breathed into us through the Holy Spirit, that as we give our life to Christ, that the Holy Spirit in us cries out, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me uh, that we can call him Daddy. So, Basically, if I believe this, and I want to really stress this one with little blinking lights, if we really believe, and let me underline the word really, really, really believe that God is our father and that he's really our daddy, then I believe we should be people who experience a supernatural peace, a supernatural comfort a supernatural joy, and a supernatural satisfaction. Brothers and sisters, that should be basically our lifestyle. I know life hits us sometimes. We get caught off guard. We get thrown by this or that. But overall, our lifestyle, if we really believe God is a father, we ought to be experiencing peace and joy and comfort and satisfaction. One of the problems I see quite honestly, in the church, is that many times we have a mental concept of God as Father. And we can say, yeah, yeah, God's Father. We know we've heard it in sermons. We've heard it maybe in Sunday school way back. We've heard people talk about God as Father. And yeah, okay, yeah, God's Father. And we got it here. But friends, it's not enough to have the concept of God as Father in the brain. It has to get from the brain and it has to come and land right here in the heart. 
That's where the action's at. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to get the concept of God as Father from the brain into the heart. And when that happens, then the Father becomes, quote, unquote, real to us. And it's at that point we begin to experience, not just in the brain, we literally begin to experience in our spirits the fact that God loves us. And it radically transforms our lives, radically transforms our lives. So what's a loving father do? How does he act? I'm going to just jump to a verse here in Matthew 7. And Matthew 7, uh, it says this, Matthew 7 and 11. Jesus makes this comment about father. He says, if you then, being evil, okay, he's talking about human fathers, okay, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give what's good to those who ask him? If you, then, being evil, know how to give gifts. He said, even human fathers that have a tendency to be evil, that have a tendency to be selfish, most human fathers, unless they're really warped out, their desire is to give good gifts to their kids. Does that make sense if you're a dad? And even if you're a mom, I think that's our instinct. Think about Christmas. You want to bless your kids, right? I mean, think about it. We want to bless them. We want good for them. We want to love them. I know I feel that as a dad. I want to do what's best for my kid. And I want to do it to the best of the ability and even sacrificially at times. And Jesus is saying, if you, as a human being who's flawed, have that desire, how much more do I love my children? Mind-blowing to me. How much more? How much more? So the Heavenly Father basically is saying, I love you. And I believe he's saying that to each of us on the screen here, individually, not just generically, that you're some just number here. But I think he would look, if, if we had time, that he would literally be looking at each of us directly in the eyeball and say, I love you. And what's that mean? I think Jesus is saying, when he says, I love you, he says, I care deeply about you. And I care about you so much that I will always, and I underline the word always, I will always do what's good for you. Always, because I'm a good father, because I'm good in my nature, I can only do good actions. And I hear Jesus saying, I want to do good. And what's that mean? It means that out of Jesus' infinite knowledge and wisdom, he will always, always, always do what's best. Always do what's best for us. Always. And I'll say a word about that in a minute about that. Always. Uh, but we need to get it. We need to get it from the head. We need to get it in the heart that God is crazy about us and he loves us and he delights in us. And he proved it just this Christmas by sending his son into the world to put our broken lives back together again. I just want to give a pitch. I've done this before and I'm just going to keep doing it. Uh, if you do not have a copy of this book, The God of All Comfort, I would say, Make it a high priority. It's The God of All Comfort by Hannah Smith, S-M-I-T-H. 
She has a chapter on the fatherhood of God that blows me away. I probably read it at least 12 times. I read it again yesterday in preparing for today. And you read it not just with your brain, but you just kind of like as lozenger under your tongue, you just kind of read it slowly and meditate on it. She drives home the fact of God as father in a way that just is, is marvelous. That's all I got to say. Highly recommend getting a copy of this. She talks about God as the shepherd, that God's good. Just it, it will make, I know it's my number one book. I get fired up about it because it just makes God real to me in a very powerful way. That's the God of all comfort, Hannah Whitehall Smith. So uh, basically, Jesus says, you know, you have a good father. Because you have a good father, he's aware of what's going on. If you notice uh, Matthew 6, 7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need. Your father, your father, your father, my father knows everybody's needs on this screen. I don't know what your needs are today, but I'm sure you have some. I know I do. Even before you open your mouth, God knows your needs and, by the way, is concerned about your needs. Look at what he says, verse 25. For this reason, Jesus says, I say to you, don't be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? He's basically saying, don't get wound up and anxious and worried about your physical needs. Don't do it. He's saying with an exclamation mark, stop. Don't worry about it. Don't you get it? I am your father. And if I'm your father, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your basic needs. I'll make sure you have the food, you have the clothing, you'll have the shelter. He looks at verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. These crazy birds are not flying around much out here in the winter, but man, you can see them in the summer. They're all over the place. He's saying they don't get and stack away food for months at a time. No, no, they depend that God is going to take care of them on a daily basis to make sure they have food. And he says, your father takes care of the crazy little bird. And then he drives the point home. Are you not worth much more than they? Jesus is making the analogy. If God takes care of the little crazy birds, how much more will he take care of us made in his own image? He's waving a little flag saying, hey, hey, think about it. God takes care of the birds. If he takes care of birds, he'll take care of you. You are his kid. And as a parent, our desire as a child for the child is to take care of the needs of the child, right? If you've ever had children, you want to take care of them. You want to meet their needs. Jesus says, get it. God takes care of the birds. He'll take care of you. Uh, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? He talks about clothing. Why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? 
And that just clobbers me on the head. Oh, men of little faith. Oh, women of little faith. I'm thinking to myself, do I fit into that category at times? Yeah, I think so. Sometimes my faith isn't so swift. So here's some homework. I began to ask myself the question the other day, and it really made me do some thinking. Why don't I fully trust my heavenly father? I want you to really think about that one. Why don't you and I fully, I underline the word fully, trust our heavenly father? Because if we fully trusted our heavenly father, we would be experiencing a peace and a joy and a satisfaction that is supernatural. So if I'm finding myself worried and anxious and uptight, I'm basically saying, I don't know who God is. Let that one sink in. If I'm not experiencing the peace and the joy, I think a major issue may be that we don't really know who God is. We may know God's Father up here, but we do we know it down in the heart. So I began to ask myself, well, why, John? Why don't you fully trust God? And here's what I found for me, and maybe it may be true of you. Over the years, we have needs that come up. We go to God in prayer and we ask God, meet this need. And we search the scriptures and we think that God should act a certain way. For instance, if I look at the scriptures, they seem to be loaded with scriptures that God wants to heal. And yet there's times we prayed our hearts out for people to be healed and they're not healed. And guess what happens? We begin to be disappointed. And then we asked again for something else down the road. And we have an expectation in our mind. This is how God should answer it because we think we understand the scriptures. And again, God doesn't answer the prayer the way we think he should. And I guess what happens again? Another disappointment. And I think what happens is over a lifetime, we gather disappointment upon disappointment upon disappointment upon disappointment. And after a while, we're, we're, we're just, we're double-minded. I don't know if I can trust God on this. I don't know if he's going to answer. Maybe I'm not praying the right way. Maybe I, I, who knows? I'm mixed up. I'm confused. And what happens is we lose faith. So I think uh, many times this happens to most of us when we go through trials and tribulations. There's times when the lights seem to go out in our life. I mean, lights go out. We can't find God. We're hurting. It could be physically. It could be mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But we're hurting. We cry out. And I just told you, I said that God's loving. I said that he's good. I said he'll always do what's best. And we say, God, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to me. God, you say you're loving, good, and kind, and you're letting me go through hell. It makes no sense. And then we, we begin to waver in our faith. Suffering is tough for Christians to make sense. A good God should, from our perspective, boom. You know, if, he's a, if I'm a father, my instinct is to save my kid from pain. I don't want my kid to suffer. Uh, and if God doesn't relieve my stress and pain instantly, then I begin to question, well, where are you? Do you care? Are you loving? Are you good? I think what we have to realize that God has a bigger picture of what good is than we do. 
I have a definition of good. God has a definition of good, and they're not the same. I just read something uh, yesterday that really struck me, uh, and it was the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So Lazarus dies. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are great friends of Jesus. They cry out to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, and they send a message. I'm sure they know Jesus is their buddy, their good friend. They know if they get the word out, Jesus is going to come. He's going to pray for Lazarus, and Lazarus is going to get better. That's their expectation. Guess what? Jesus delays deliberately. Lazarus dies. He shows up, and the sisters are pretty upset. Like, why didn't you come? From their perspective, God wasn't loving Jesus wasn't good. He wasn't doing what's best. But Jesus was basically saying, you don't get, you don't see the big picture. In the big picture, it was more important that Lazarus would be able to die and be resurrected. I'll get more glory from that than an instantaneous healing. So I think sometimes God allows us to go through the ringer and the hard times and the pain and the suffering because it's in those things we're brought closer to him. And not only are we brought closer to him, but we're formed into the image of Jesus. And check it out in your life. God, most of the time, gets more real when we're hurting and struggling. And God gets a distance out of our pain and suffering that would never happen if everything was just open and free and no heartaches or trials. So, I think we need to ask the question, Lord, why don't I fully have faith in you? What, what, why this double-mindedness? It's well worth asking the question. And then Jesus goes a little bit further. Uh, and he says on verse 32, about all this food and clothing and, and different things, he says, for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And what's interesting to me, Jesus says the priority, folks, is not getting your needs met, your physical needs met. He says, no, the priority is seek first, not to get all your needs met. He said, seek first the kingdom. He says, that's the priority in my heart. And in the Lord's Prayer, God wants to meet our needs. He wants to give us our daily bread. He wants to forgive our debts. But before that, after we say he's father, the priority is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We looked at that a bit last week. So from Jesus' perspective, the most important needs are the spiritual needs. And he's asking us to basically put the kingdom first, to seek to bring people into the kingdom, to bring people to Jesus as Lord and Savior, to make them whole. That's Jesus' first priority. And it's interesting. He said, if that's your focus coming in the back door, I'll take care of your needs. So he's saying, don't get wired up and fired up about your needs. Seek my kingdom and I'll take care of the rest. Just trust me. You do what I'm asking you to do. Get the word out about who I am and I'll make sure that your needs are met. And then he begins to wrap up and I begin to wrap up here too. Uh, he ends with 34. Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. And how easy we can get anxious about what's going to happen in the future. 
I think of people that maybe you're going to be having a, a big surgery and it's going to happen next week and we can get so wound up about the future. Oh my, I got to go. I'm going to have the surgery and what's going to happen. And, and am I going to make it through? Am I not? And we get all wired up and tight and anxious. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. One day you take one day at a time. I'll take care of the day. Don't go running around that the next week, the next month, whatever. Uh, just two real quick illustrations there. And I'm, I'm wrapping up Corey Ten Boom. Uh, who was a lady, was in a prisoner of war camp in uh, Germany in World War II, went through hell and came out and had an amazing testimony. God, in that experience, molded and shaped her in unbelievable ways. And she gave the illustration of one day at a time. She said, uh, well, my father would take us on the train, that he would get tickets weeks before. And the tickets are with him the whole time. But he said, uh, as they were coming to the train, she would bug him, give me the ticket, give me the ticket. And he basically said, daughter, you don't need the ticket yet. You only need the ticket when the conductor asks for it when you get on the train. And what he's trying to say to her is, God gives you the grace you need when you need it, not ahead of time. I think many times we wonder, like, what would I do if I was going to be martyred? And I think about it, man, my human instinct is, man, I would chicken out and run. But I'd have to trust that when that need is there and somebody may be putting a gun to my head at that moment, not ahead of time, at that moment, God would give me grace at that moment, basically, to be martyred. That grace is given not ahead of time but when it's needed. One other illustration, George Muir had an orphanage over in England. And this man has a testimony of trust that is way off the edge. An amazing man. And he took care of all these orphans. Uh, I have hundreds of these on a daily basis. And he, he let no one know about the needs of the orphanage. He just went to God and said, God, you know what's the scoop. I'm trusting you. And God met the needs. But one day, somebody came into him before breakfast and they said, we have food, but there's no milk. We have no milk for this group of kids. And if I believe the story was right, Muir just looked up and said, Father, you know the need. You know the need. What's so cool at that point, out in front of the orphanage, there was a milk truck. In all the good old days, you know, you had the horse, all that. In front of the, the uh, orphanage, a milk truck literally broke down. And because of the milk was there, it was going to go bad. He knocks on the door and says, hey, can you guys use milk? And guess what? Milk was there. What an amazing faith. He trusted that God would meet the need when it occurred. So let me just give you two quotes from Corey Ten Boom. She says, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. In other words, don't jump ahead. God will meet the need when it's there. And then one other quote, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. 
Now, isn't that an amazing quote? Let me say it again. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future. And folks, that's we're going into the future. It's unknown what's going on in 2023. We don't know what's going to go in the world. Neither do any of us know what's going to go on in our individual lives. We don't know. But never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And who's the known God? It's the Father. God's our Father. He's our Daddy. So again, I my prayer is that God would take this from Father from the head into the heart. Again, if you don't have a copy of the book, The God of All Comfort, Hannah Smith, read the chapter on the Father over and over, and I believe it'll help you get the concept from your head into your heart. Let's pray. Father, we just don't want to throw that word out lightly or quickly. It's an amazing word. It's the primary word that your son gave us about who you are. So I just want to pray, Lord, for all my brothers and sisters, Lord. And I believe almost everybody on this Zoom call is a child of yours. And Father, if we are a child, that makes you our dad. And we thank you, Father. Even human fathers want to take care of their kids. So, Lord, I just want to thank you. I believe you want to take care of the needs of each of your children on this screen. That's what you said in your word, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be able to receive what you want to give. Help us, Lord, to trust you when we don't get what we think we should get in our way or in our time. But help us, Lord, to trust that you have a bigger picture than we do. And help us to trust, though, that you love us and you'll always do what's best, even if that means we experience pain at times. So, Lord, we just give you the day. Thank you for caring for us and put that care in us that we can share it with others, with our family, with the people we work with, friends, neighbors. Uh, may you get the glory and honor. And it's in your name we ask you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Walk with your father today. It makes a difference.